Hello, you're listening to Why With Anyone. This is a space where I try to figure out why we do the things we do and how intrinsic motivation shows up in every part of our lives. My name is Tanya Rabesandratana, and today my guest is best-selling author Daniel Pink. If you have even a passing interest in motivation theory, I'm pretty sure I don't need to introduce Dan Pink. His TED talk, The Puzzle of Motivation, is literally one of the most popular TED videos of all time, and he expanded his ideas in the book Drive, The Surprising Truth About What Motivates Us. Pink and I discuss why he thinks intrinsic motivation matters now more than ever, and how many workplaces are still not getting it. He reveals his method to sustain his own motivation and also gives us some advice to protect the inner drive of children. And we talk about his most recent work, The Power of Regret, a manifesto for redeeming our regrets as a source of motivation. Ding, 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 ding. First, I have some really uh, simple question about the basics of intrinsic motivation, and I wonder why intrinsic motivation is so powerful. I think it's so powerful because it's a fundamental part of being human. It is an often neglected part of being human. It's that sometimes we do things not because that we're biologically compelled to do them, not because we want to get a reward or a punishment, but because we like doing it. It's enjoyable. It's meaningful. It brings us, it brings us pleasure. It brings us joy. It, it, it brings us significance. Me- it, it, it moves us closer to a sense of purpose, a sense of meaning. We do things because it's the right thing to do. And my gripe, such as it is, is that in too many organizations, in too many schools, we only have this two-dimensional view of human beings as essentially biological creatures with a reward and punishment drive. And we've neglected that intrinsic motivation drive. What's more is that that intrinsic motivation seems to be the most important of those drives for high performance in just about any field. You wrote the book Drive in 2010. You published it in 2010. Mm. Um, so that drive, you have that organizations don't pay enough attention to intrinsic motivation. Have you seen a change in the past 12 years? Some. Some. I mean, I think that, that again, the essential point in motivation in organizations and even in schools is this, that there's a certain kind of motivator that we rely on quite a bit. Um, psychologists call it a controlling contingent motivator. I like to call it an if-then reward, as in if you do this, then you get that. If you do this, then you get that. What 60 years of research tells us is that if-then rewards are effective for simple tasks with short time horizons. You want somebody to stuff envelopes, pay them per envelope, give them a bonus for every 100 envelopes, you will get more envelopes stuffed, all right? There's no question about that. But, so if-then rewards are effective for simple tasks with short time horizons. However, They are not very effective for complex tasks that require judgment, discernment, creativity, or with long time horizons. My view is like, let's use what's effective in the particular places. And the the, the trouble is, is that that the domains in which people are doing simple, uh, algorithmic, short-term work are shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And the domains in which people are doing more complex, heuristic, complicated, conceptual, creative, Longer-term work is are widening and widening and widening. And so in, in a way, what we have, a way to think about this is that we have this set of motivators that were you know, fairly effective for 19th century work, somewhat effective for 20th century work, but they're getting kind of old and tattered for, for most 21st century work. And so we have to come up with a better way to do things. What we want, especially in schools, especially in workplaces, is neither compliance nor defiance, but engagement. 
And you cannot control somebody into engagement. It doesn't work that way. You describe three elements in the book that are necessary for that motivation, that intrinsic motivation to flourish, mastery, autonomy, and purpose. Um, can you go through them really quickly and maybe give us some examples of, of how to get those at work? The best motivational regime at work is this. Let's start. You got to pay people. You got to pay people fairly. All right. Again, the research doesn't say that money doesn't matter. Money matters. Uh, but it doesn't matter in the simple mechanical way that people tend to think, where more money always gets you better performance. Money is in some ways a threshold motivator. So you got to pay people well. You got to pay people fairly. Arguably, as I've said many times, that there's an argument. There's an argument that the best use of money as a motivator is to pay people enough to take the issue of money off the table. So once we do that, as you say, there are three core motivators. One of them is autonomy. And autonomy is, is just having some, again, come back to control, giving the control to the individual so that the individual has some say over what she does, how she does it, when she does it, who she does it with. Uh, mastery is our desire to get better at something that matters, to improve, to learn, to grow, to make progress. Teresa Mabile at Harvard has some really, really great research showing that the single biggest day-to-day -day motivator on the job is making progress in meaningful work. So that's mastery. And then purpose, where I've, I've sort of thought about that a little bit differently than I did when I first wrote the book, I think that purpose is not one thing but two things. There are two different kinds of purpose. One of them is what I call capital P purpose, and that is, am I doing something that matters in the world? Am I, you know... Um, uh, addressing the climate crisis? Am I uh, feeding the hungry? Um, but there's also another quieter kind of purpose that I like to call small p purpose that is equally important that I neglected writing about enough in the book. Um, and that is, am I simply making a contribution? Am I helping a teammate get a project out the door? Am I helping a customer resolve its problem? Quieter kind of small p purpose. And so capital P purpose is making a difference. Small p purpose is making a contribution. I spoke with a researcher who was talking about meaning at work, meaningful work, and he was saying you don't have to be Nelson Mandela. Exactly, exactly. And I feel like in the book, I didn't do a good enough job of explaining that. That puts some pressure on having this uh, big vocation that... Exactly, exactly. It's very hard to, you know, walk in every day and say, I'm solving the climate crisis, you know? Um, so that's not at people's fingertips every day. It, it's effective. It's, it's important. And if you can get it occasionally, it's fantastic. But it's not the kind of thing that necessarily is salient every single day in your job. The way you make a contribution is by having a sense of belonging and affinity with the people around you and doing something even modest together. Ding, 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 ding. I understand that children, when they're born, are kind of intrinsically driven to do most things. And we kind of suck that out of them. I think that's, there's a, there, I think there's evidence of that. You know, like, go find me a two-year-old who's not autonomous, who's not self-directed. Go find me a four-year-old who's not autonomous and self-directed. Go find me a four-year-old who's not interesting in growing and learning and getting better, who's not asking questions about why. I think that in certain kinds of structures, for instance, schools, kids can easily unlearn that, that I think that this capacity that we have is somewhat fragile. And it can be shattered, it can be suppressed, it can be suffocated. And it's important that our institutions, companies, schools, community groups, whatever, allow this innate intrinsic motivation to, to flourish because people are going to do better and live more happily. I want to ask you your one top tip, maybe something you've applied with your children. 
Well, my kids are my kids are um, my kids are, are older now, but uh, but so so I'll give you a few ideas here. One, do not link allowances and chores. They're totally different worlds. Don't do that. So, I mean, I'm all for parents giving kids allowances, all right? Because it's a small amount of money, basically, to give them a little bit of a sense that of how to manage money, how to defer gratification, so forth. All right, but I don't like linking them to chores because. What happens is, is that if I give, if I give, you know, if a parent gives a kid, you know, five bucks a week to do the chores, and the kid finally says, ah, you know what, I'm kind of sick of this, I need eight bucks, um, and then the parent grudgingly says, okay, here's eight bucks, and then two weeks later he says, I need ten bucks. Um, it, it's it 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 is it is uh, it's polluting two different two different worlds. That's an example of, you know, why do people why do people help out their family members. Like, it's not a transaction. They help out their family members because it's the right thing to do and they have a moral obligation to do that. Two, um, allow kids to explore. I think that there is too much pressure, especially in upper-middle-class families, to begin specializing in anything, in a musical instrument, in a sport, very, very early in life. And there is a lot of evidence showing that that kids' interests change that you want, that people need experience, need periods of exploration before they go deep on something. I also think that the way that we talk about grades in school is really important. Uh, we have to disabuse these kids of thinking that grades are the point of school. Uh, ideally, grades are feedback on, your, on what you're learning that allows you to learn and grow more effectively. And so we need to separate performance goals from learning goals. And I think that in too many schools, grades for the students and the parents are the point of the exercise. And that's very dangerous. You have written seven books now. As a journalist, I'm used to moving from one story to the next within days or weeks. So I'm really fascinated by people who sustain motivation for longer projects. So what is it that drives you and keeps you going on those long-term projects? Um, I, I think it, I think. Part of it is just simply that I, I like figuring stuff out, and, and that gives me a sense of satisfaction. So taking a giant tangle of material, massive amount, years and years of material across different disciplines and including the stories of real people and so forth, and trying to make sense of it and wrestle it into something coherent. I like that. I, I, I like that challenge. Some people like to sprint. Some people like to run long distances. I'm a better long-distance runner than I am a sprinter. And the way that I sustain the motivation really is um, through structure. Um, that is, I don't sit around waiting to be inspired to write or to work. I show up in my office every day and do my job. Okay, so what does that scaffolding look like? Typically, when I'm writing, I, I give myself a word count. So I give myself, say, 500 words or 600 words or 700 words. And I don't do anything until I hit that word count. Uh, I don't answer email. I don't pick up my phone. I don't, you know, check social media. I don't play Wordle. I don't do anything until I hit that word count. And then once I hit that word count, I'm free to do whatever I want. And then I do it the next day and the next day and the next day. It's about allowing that intrinsic motivation to flourish by creating the context and the environment in which that kind of motivation can, can blossom. And so there's a sort of a paradox here, which is that in this case, for this kind of project, structure is liberating. Ding, 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 ding. I want to talk about your new book, The Power of Regret. Um, sure. How Looking Backward Moves Us Forward. 
Um, so you turn in the book, you turn the mantra of no regrets on its head and push us to look at regrets as a guide toward a, a better life. Um, and how can regret act as a source of motivation? Let me start with, with some background. So one of the things that we know about regret is that it, there, there are two key things we know about regret. One is that it's integral to our cognitive machinery. Everybody has regrets. And this is really important. This is the thing that sort of, in, in some ways, it's, it's related to the material and drive because, you know, um, there was something there in people that we needed to shine a light on in the same way that everybody's always had intrinsic motivation and we need to shine a light on that and say, hey, we need to pay attention to this. Uh, regret is, is somewhat is similar. Everybody has regrets. It is one of the most common emotions that human beings have. The only people who don't have regrets are people with some kind of disorder or, or little kids whose brains haven't developed. So that's one thing. The second thing is like this, that's kind of weird, right? Because like intrinsic motivation feels good, but regret feels bad. So why would something that feels bad be so ubiquitous? And the answer is it's useful, okay? It, it clarifies what we value and instructs us on how to do better. What we need to do is we need to actually have a new view of regret, not ignore our regrets, which I think a lot of us in this overly positive environment are encouraged to do, but also not wallow in our regrets, but actually confront our regrets, use them as information, as signals, as data. So... Um, now, what does it teach us about motivation? I think that when you understand what people regret the most, you understand what they value the most. So as you know, I've collected at this point over 21,000 regrets from people in 109 countries. And around the world, these four, four core regrets keep coming up over and over again. And they operate as a reverse image of what people want out of life. Could you give us an example of, of a regret that maybe you've had and how you turn it on its head and use it as... Uh, a positive drive. One of the ones that bugs me the most, and, I, and I'll, I'll tell you what. So, so I have a lot of I have regrets about kindness, uh, particularly earlier in my life uh, when I was when I was younger. And it wasn't kindness that came from being a bully because I was not. It's kindness. It was sort of kindness by inaction, uh, unkindness by inaction. And so I was in many situations where people were not being treated well, where they were being excluded, they were being you know uh, not handled fairly. Um, and I saw it go on. And I didn't do anything. I didn't contribute to it. I wasn't sort of actively excluding or, you know, disadvantaging people. But I saw it go on. And I knew it was wrong. And that bugs me, man. And so, so, here's, so here's the question then. What do I do with that? I can do this ridiculous thing and say, no regrets. I never look backward. I don't have any regrets. I never look backward. I'm never negative. I'm always positive. Okay? That's delusional. Or I can say, oh, my God, I was unkind by inaction. I'm a terrible human being. I always do this. I'm worthless. I'm a complete idiot. That's a bad idea, too. What I want to do is say, wait a second. This regret that I'm feeling for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years is telling me something. It's a knock at the door. It's telling me something. And what it's telling me is that I value kindness. It's telling me, okay, Dan, here's what you need to do. You need to be more inclusive. When you are in those situations now, and I try to do that now, and you see somebody being excluded, you need to say something. You need to bring that person in. You need to actually step up. Can you tell us what is a Sagmeister and have you been your Sagmeisters? Um, this is an idea that Stefan Sagmeister, the designer, had where he said, you know, so you, you typically have uh, a, at least in sort of upper, you know, middle class industrialized world. You go, 
your life goes education, work, retirement. And what he did, which I thought was brilliant, is he takes the retirement chunk and he slices it up and puts little slices of retirement in the work thing. So, um, so you take like a one year sabbatical if you can afford, you know, if you can if you can afford it. Rather, than, so you do have like a year of retirement, a year of sabbatical in the middle of your work life. Um, and I have not done that yet, but um, it's going to happen soon. Do you have regrets about not taking your Sagmeisters in the past? No, but I. But this is this is the case where truly I, I think about anticipating a regret if I don't do it soon. So, um, so one thing to do about it, when we think about our regrets is that if you know, I, let's say I have a conversation with myself ten years from now, right? So I, I call myself in. I call the me of twenty thirty two, and say, "Hey, Dan, it's it's you know, uh, uh, it's twenty thirty. Me of twenty thirty two says, wait a second, what the hell are you doing? Um, ten years passed and you didn't do your sabbatical. What's wrong with you? I don't want to have that conversation with the me of ten years from now." I have a more somber version of this, where I talk to my death, um, uh, talk to myself uh, on my deathbed. It's pretty pretty much the same. But it's okay. It's okay. It's a very important technique called called self distancing, where we sort of take think about our own lives from the perspective of as if we're somebody else, and that helps that helps again clarify. Uh, it helps clarify our decision making, and, and can and can very easily lead to better decisions. Ding 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 ding. Thank you to Dan Pink and to you for listening to our conversation. If you want to find out more about his work and his books, go to his website, danpink.com. This was Why Would Anyone with me, Tanya Ravesandhatana. For the complete show notes, go to my newsletter about intrinsic motivation, tanya.substack.com, and subscribe. That's T-A-N-I-A.substack.com. Finally, I want to let you know I am the recipient of the Attuned Writer Fellowship. Attuned is a psychology and AI-powered platform that tracks and measures intrinsic motivation to boost employee engagement, drive performance, and make work more meaningful. Find out more and sign up for a free demo at attuned.ai. Thank you, until soon.